Okay, I guess we will get started. Um, again, yes, echoing Swain's words, um, we apologize for the delay. Um, we had planned to go until 10.30 today, and we can, you know, if you all have questions, we can keep that going. Um, but I just, I want to welcome all of you. Um, Salim and I actually spoke on the phone last week, and we were talking about our purpose and our interest in having this discussion and focusing on this topic. And we realized this is a very narrow topic. It's a very um, specific area that we're looking at, but it's very relevant to the work that we do. And so our target really was having a very small, engaged audience um, to help us work through it um, and to talk about this issue. So um, for that reason, I am glad that you all are here, and I thank you for joining us. Um, my name is Nazia Khan. I'm the Assistant Director at the South Asia Center of the Atlantic Council. Um, on behalf of the council and our director, Bharat Gopalswamy, who got pulled away to India and unfortunately could not be here, although he very much wanted to, um, I'd like to welcome all of you and welcome Salim um, for this discussion. It's entitled Data Diplomacy, Water, Natural Hazards, and Regionalism. So more often than not, when we think of South Asia, we really think of the hard security challenges that it faces. We think of terrorism, nuclear issues, governance, economic growth um, and opportunities. But South Asia houses more than, South Asia houses about one-fifth of the world's population. It's one of the most populous regions and the most densely populated regions in the world. Um, and those growing populations are putting a tremendous strain on the resources that are available on the land, on the water, on other resources as well. So to us, this means that we really need to be paying more attention to this. We need to be looking at hard security issues, but then also looking at non-traditional security threats and the, the challenges that they will pose on the region. Um, we really think that if these non-traditional security threats go unaddressed, that they will become real hard security threats in the future. Um, but Addressing any collective regional issue in South Asia is a difficult task. Bringing South Asian countries to the table, let alone having them agree, is a huge challenge and it's often hindered by stakeholders in both of those countries. Um, but that said, we shouldn't forget that South Asia has found success at regional cooperation in the past. The Indus Water Treaty in 1960, forged in 1960, has proven to be one of the most successful water sharing agreements given the conflicts that it has endured in India and Pakistan. But while the Indus Water Treaty has secured water for hundreds of millions of people across South Asia for nearly 60 years, the region has evolved and the world has evolved. Um, we have growing populations, like I mentioned before, economic growth, climate change, we've had major and minor disasters in, that, in India and Pakistan, and they are all placing a huge stress on water security in the two countries. So against this backdrop, a lot of analysts have suggested that data sharing is a huge solution. It already exists in the region, but we need to increase that data sharing. We need to ensure that the data that's being shared is accurate and consistent. Um, and by doing this, we will lower cross-border tension and we'll also pave the way for just better planning as we face these new challenges. Um, but you know, in a region where trust is limited, the statement can be contentious. Um, this can be a difficult thing. So at the Atlantic Council, actually, we set out to look at the water of waters, to look at the issue of water scarcity through the eyes of stakeholders in the region. So in about 2012, we set up a water dialogue where we brought track two leaders um, that include water experts, former ambassadors, former ministers to the table from both sides of the border and we had them discuss the issue of water scarcity, what it means, how to address it, how we can cooperate together. So after a couple of convenings, what we found was that the experts wanted to look at three different tracks to address the issue. One of those tracks was climate change and the impact on glaciers. The other one was farmers exchanges and how we can share expertise. And the final one was data sharing. And to me that was, very telling because that meant that data sharing was just as important as climate change. Like we need to be looking at both of these issues equally. Um, and it's also still a point of contention. You know, part of, I was a little bit surprised because I didn't realize, I, I knew that data was being shared across the border, but the fact that it needs to be improved and it needs to be addressed about how we can do this more consistently um, is still something that is debated. Um, so I'm really pleased that Salim Ali is here because he is an expert on this. Um, 
you have this bio in front of you, so I don't want to spend more time since we're already running a little bit short. Um, so I'd like to turn over the floor to Salim, and then we'll open it up to questions after. Great. Thank you very much, Nadia. I well, am delighted to be back in the U.S. Uh, as you know, I'm based in Australia, and uh, I try whenever I'm in the U.S. to um, make a visit to Washington. Uh, I was actually in Philadelphia and Delaware for some other meetings, and uh, so I had a day extra, and thankfully uh, we were able to schedule something. Uh, I usually try to go to a you know a different think tank each time. Uh, I've had affiliations with Brookings and have presented at other places as well. Um, but I, I really wanted to come to the Atlantic Council partially because of the points that uh, Nazia raised that uh, the Council has been very much involved in track to diplomacy efforts. Uh, I had the pleasure of co-authoring a chapter with uh, Shuja Nawaz a couple of years ago for a book that the World Wildlife Fund had uh, put together. And uh, so at that time I was introduced to some of the work of the Council Bharat uh, Gopalaswamy, I have known also for about three, four years when he used to be in Indiana and, uh, uh, and in Illinois, based in different places in Sweden, and we exchanged emails. Um, and uh, he invited me whenever I could come, so I'm, I'm delighted I could uh, make it. Um, the other aspect of why the Atlantic Council, I think, is really important in this con uh, conversation is that. Uh, the, the, even the think tank community within uh, Washington uh, sadly has become very polarized within regional South Asian uh, discussions. And uh, we do find this situation where certain countries have dominance in the way the conversation plays out within the think tanks. And I won't go further, but I think you, most of you who are insiders here know what I'm referring to there. Uh, and so Atlantic Council has been, I think, one of the most balanced in approaching the issue and not getting too beholden to one particular uh, lobbying interest or the other. So I, I have particular respect in that regard for their work in South Asia. And um, I, and as an academic, I'm, I'm really not afraid of controversies. And uh, so, you know, I, I have that liberty as a tenured professor to say whatever I like, I think. And so um, feel free to challenge me, question me uh, about these issues. But as a scientist, first and foremost, uh, it's really important that the issue of water and scientific data be considered in that light itself, without politicization, uh, with, but recognizing that politics is inevitably going to play a role. When I say without politicization, I mean that the decision-making process should at least be transparent in terms of the data availability and discussion and deliberation of the data. The decision itself will always be political at some level. You cannot avoid that aspect, right? Um, now, uh, this particular um, uh, project that I am sharing with you today is a very recent one, but it builds on some work that I did for the New America Foundation uh, two years ago. Um, in, I think it was in 2014, actually, when um, I made a presentation with Peter Bergen at the New America Foundation, which focused on, uh, uh, on the concept of ecological cooperation in South Asia. And uh, that report is available online, those of you who are interested. It's, um, uh, you can just Google it and you know, it'll show up, ecological cooperation in South Asia, the way forward. And there's also a YouTube video uh, of my discussion with Peter Bergen uh, that you can refer to. That, that's a prelude to this new project, because that was sort of a uh, macro-level analysis of what are the different pathways by which ecological cooperation can occur in South Asia. Uh, and I particularly focused on the role of regional organizations like SARC, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, uh, and also uh, ISIMOD, the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, which is based in Kathmandu, Nepal. Um, now, building on that work, um, I was approached by uh, Robert Versing, who, uh, who recently retired from uh, Georgetown's uh, Qatar campus. Uh, and uh, uh, as some of you may know of the work of Robert Wersing, he has been very interested in unconventional approaches to security. Uh, and he told me about a project he was working on with the United Nations University's Water Center, 
uh, and it was to compile a book on um, a, a new way to look at the watersheds of South Asia. And this book uh, he had termed, uh, I think, quite imaginatively, uh, it was called Imagining Hindustan with an I, right? Now, as those of you who are South Asianists would know that the, uh, the traditional name for uh, India is Hindustan. And so he said, and Hindu, the word Hindu, the religion, it comes from actually, the, some etymologists believe it comes from the word Sindhu, and Sindhu is uh, the province of Sindh where the Indus River flows. And whether you name the province for uh, the, the river or the river for the province, uh, the, 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 the point being that uh, the ancient Indus civilization was defined by the river. Uh, and in fact, uh, the religion itself was defined to some degree by the river, by some etymologist's view. And of course, now South Asia is a much more uh, pluralistic uh, region with so many different religions and so on. But the river endures. The river will endure <laughs> in whatever form, whether in impaired quality or, uh, or not. Uh, and so we should think of it eco-regionally and to imagine this eco-regional approach of Hindustan and to see where we can have governance systems that respect that, the integrity of the river. So uh, this book is going to be coming out at the end of this year uh, and, it, and uh, we just got the page proofs and all and I have contributed a chapter which is what I wanted to share with you and gain your insights and uh, as with all academic work you know it, it needs to be dynamic and I'm happy to be convinced that some of these views are different and maybe in my next writings uh, you know some of your views will influence that as well so um, basically what I have tried to do in this uh, chapter which I have co-authored with a colleague uh, at the University of Vermont Asim Zia uh, who is uh, more of a climate change modeler and a system scientist so I am more a you know, I'm an applied social scientist. I have sort of an eclectic background and with degrees in chemistry and environmental studies. But my my uh, doctorate is in environmental planning, so I I tend to focus on the future as a planner. And the goal of this uh, chapter was to use. That his expertise as a climate scientist modeler and and, and my my uh, planning um, expertise, if you may call it. Uh, and then to synthesize something which would consider ways in which uh, data is going to be so important in uh, allowing for regional cooperation to occur. Now, if you, if you try to Google the term data diplomacy, and I'm going to use the, uh, the pronunciation data in Australia, we're used to data, and I, I still say data as a bit of a Star Trek fanatic, I suppose, so I adhere to data. Uh, but data um, diplomacy, if you Google it, it will be, uh, you'll come up with all kinds of strange things, you know. You you come up with, like, uh, there's the State Department report on how uh, data should be used on in public diplomacy and how data informs diplomacy, right? Well, of course, data should always inform all decision making, right? Unfortunately, it doesn't. But but you you come across this, and it's 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 uh, for me surprising that it's presented as a novel concept that ah oh, diplomacy should be informed by data, you know? And wow, someone at the State Department really thought that was a good idea, you know? And uh, so there's a, this whole little niche literature on how you should have knowledge informing diplomacy essentially because data is knowledge right um, uh, and then you have if you go dig a little deeper then you have other kinds of uh, discourse on uh, data diplomacy will focus on well how is um, diplomacy impacting data acquisition right so how can you actually uh, use diplomatic processes to to um, get better in information um, and that also is, you know, it's somewhat uh, um, more of a securitized approach. It is like, okay, we, we need the information. How can we talk to them the right way to get the information, right? Whereas what I'm using the connotation for data diplomacy is something very different. It is that data itself is empowering in in harnessing the fruits of diplomacy, that you can actually improve the diplomatic process 
by having good data exchanges. And the hypothesis there being that transparency and disclosure in some form can help with improving cooperation. Now, this, is in, this, this hypothesis has been tested in many different ways. There are people who challenge it. They say that even in negotiation discourse, right, that you, if, you, if you share too much information when there's a trust deficit, it can actually lead to uh, further erosion of trust because people can spin conspiracy theories or they can do all kinds of other things and you, you don't usually get the outcome you desire, right? So, I, I recognize that that in itself is a problematic uh, prospect if, they, if, if the data is going to be used in a negative way and that the transparency will lead to misunderstandings. And there's some you know, really good work on the problems of transparency overall. But what I'm referring to specifically is ecological data. And ecological data has peculiarities which make it different from other kinds of data, right? There's some kinds of data where you have information on different people's views and perspectives. That's the WikiLeaks type of data, right? That, that is not objective data and scientific data. It's data what people may have said and that may lead to misperceptions and misunderstandings. That's a very different area. It's still data. It's still social scientists would still use that information to develop causality, to have behavioral studies and psychological studies. But it is not the same as ecological data, which has certain objective parameters around it, that this much water is flowing. This is the water quality. This is how the uh, hydrological system is functioning. Um, this is how the botanical system is functioning and so on. So that's what I am concerned about. And in this chapter, we focus specifically on ecological data. Uh, now, um, there, there is a definition that someone at the World Universities Network has presented of data diplomacy. And I, I have, I have um, uh, augmented it a little bit. It says, data diplomacy is an emerging cross-disciplinary idea that addresses the role of diplomacy and negotiation in relation to data access and sharing. Now, that's broad enough to encompass what I'm saying as well as the impact of data on diplomatic relationships. Where I have added a, a word there is the impact of data sharing on diplomatic relationship. It's not just the impact of what information people may get. It's the actual dynamic process of sharing the data. Okay? And the Indus Waters Treaty that Nazia referred to did have data sharing built into it, but there were problems. And I have my own critique of the Indus Waters Treaty. I think it is somewhat over-celebrated uh, because in reality, the Indus Waters Treaty, which was negotiated by an engineer from the Tennessee Valley Authority as a consultant for the World Bank, he basically presented an engineering solution of, well, you've got so many rivers, you've got so much water, let's just divide it up and everyone will be happy. It was not an eco-regional solution. He never considered um, the the overall Indus Basin in terms of what the impact would be of building a dam here versus there, what the different causality mechanisms would be, right? So this, in, in some ways, it was a success in the sense that it has endured many armed conflicts. But from an eco-regional perspective, it was not an integrative solution. It is what we call a distributive solution. And often distributive solutions um, miss many of the, the synergies that could be harnessed if you looked at it integratively and thought creatively about some other kinds of ways of, um, of um, having a more efficient outcome for water sharing, right? Because basically they divided the rivers and the division of the rivers doesn't make that much sense ecologically, right? The three rivers go to India, three to Pakistan and one you know, So that kind of situation happened. Now, um, with data sharing, so one of the, the concepts that we deal with in this, um, uh, in this paper uh, is that the, the quality of the data is going to have to be very important, right? Because if you get bad quality data and you start sharing bad quality data, you can increase the trust deficit because data can be used to mislead as well. So if people find out that you're giving them bad data, which is something that often the Americans, you know, accuse the Chinese of in terms of the data that is shared on energy, for example, or there is a lot of controversy around the energy 
data that is provided, uh, that can actually lead to further trust deficits as well. Um, the other is the competitive advantage and conflation of intellectual property that is also brought up with data. You know, people are always saying, well, if you're sharing the data, what about intellectual property and how, I, I would say we, the, the kind of, again, the ecological data does not have that peculiarity because you're not sharing information which is potentially going to be used for commercial purposes in the same way. It could have some, uh, you know, it could provide some assistance for commercial purposes, but I would argue in some ways that ecological data falls into that broader common good category uh, of uh, what should be allowed of access to anyone, right? That you should know this is in terms of basic life support systems of the planet, uh, what is going on. And that is why some of the work that I've done on environmental diplomacy, which uh, Nazi has worked on one of her recent books uh, as well that I co-authored, um, has been around that, the focus on on scientific institutions and the role they can play in reformation of scientific institutions to provide data for all, open source data where possible, right? The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was meant to be that to some degree, but it had lots of problems structurally, um, which led to uh, you know many controversies, certainly. The, the, the next incarnation of these panels, the UN set up, which is like uh, for biodiversity, the recent one, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, that's uh, a reformed version of that to provide data in a more um, uh, collaborative way also, but hopefully in a less politicized way as well. So there are ways in which the, the UN system is trying to evolve and learn from this. The third point we make in this um, paper is around data obsolescence. Um, and this is true of some ecological data, you know, that data is, is very time dependent and you've got some information on water flows at one point in time which will have no uh, relevance later. Population data, you know, one of the, I've been doing a recent project for the International Growth Center which is a Oxford LSE uh, collaborative funded by DFID and um, in Pakistan, uh, which is uh, my country of origin, we were doing a study in Faslabad, and the last census, uh, you know, census in Faslabad was almost 20 years ago. And there is no other census data available, really, and everything else is really um, conjecture. We know that the population of Faslabad is not two million people anymore by a long shot. Um, but that's, uh, you know, and then like, how do you get that? imprimatur saying, yes, this is accurate data, right? And then you have to use modeling, you have to do all. So there's the obsolescence problem, which is really significant in data diplomacy, because you have to then set up institutions which can provide continuous monitoring, updating of data. So uh, in this paper, the, some of the, uh, the key points that we raise, and I, I'll, uh, I'll open it up then for conversation with you around, is one of the things we talk about is that um, we, we need, uh, there is a data gap, first of all, because uh, around water, particularly in South Asia, the Indus Waters Treaty, uh, it focuses on aggregate flow statistics of the six Indus tributaries, okay? That's the information you get. Uh, and these are provided as, as, as a provision of the Indus Waters Treaty. However, this aggregate data, it's not as useful if you're going to try and calibrate hydrological models that require very clear spatially distributed uh, metrics. So you need, for example, land cover change data and very high resolution to do those kinds of accurate modeling. Uh, at less than one kilometer square really is what you need. Um, and that's not provided by the Indus Waters Treaty. So what can happen is if you get if you get bad resolution data, you actually mislead the decision outcome, right? So the Indus Waters Treaty has this major problem in that regard. Um, uh, and there's a, a great opportunity for for science diplomacy right now uh, to get much better data, particularly for some of the tributaries, and to help with disaster planning. As you know, floods are a recurring problem in the region. Uh, and I would say particularly for two of the tributaries, in the, in the paper we talk about uh, uh, why this is the case and so on, uh, and my colleague Asim Zia is uh, more a specialist on this area. 
Um, but uh, particularly we focused on uh, Neelam Jhelum, the, the, the Neelam tributary going into the Jhelum River and the Kabul River tributaries where we, and this is, brings in Afghanistan also because the Kabul River of course uh, flows through Afghanistan as well. Um, and uh, those have, we, we really have an opportunity to use uh, that data much more effectively to build trust between especially Afghanistan and Pakistan, but also between India and Pakistan around the Jhelum. Uh, and to get this data sh sharing at high resolution, uh, whereby we would be able to have much more effective disaster planning around floods particularly. Now, there was an effort made after um, a few of the flood events um, to get remote sensing data. And USAID has helped with that, and there, there have been lots of effort around, but there are limitations to remote sensing data. Uh, because, for example, with satellite data, you can't really get stream flow statistics. You know, you can get the um, land cover, you can get some water metrics as well around quality and the, you know, spatial distribution of water, but you can't get the flow st uh, statistics. And you really need good field observations for that. And if you could set up a good mechanism around data acquisition also, where people are, scientists are actually collaborating and getting data together, field data, which can be verified, so trust can be built that there are scientists who are going together and, and actually collecting the data, you get an additional level of um, the, the, the trust dividend from science, right? So that's something which we have proposed in the paper as well. Uh, I think USAID and uh, some of the other donors, especially uh, the Scandinavians, have been very uh, good in supporting some of the regional efforts around disaster mitigation, but they have not been able to invest the political capital to actually get that on-the-ground uh, scientific collaboration as much as is needed. Uh, it's much more at the level of getting macro information uh, and then working with scientists at ISI mode, uh, particularly in, in Kathmandu, to try and um, develop these models. And I can share with you that you know, I had a diagram of some of the works with, uh, which were presented there and Nazia can circulate uh, the material as well around that. Uh, so then, um, finally, what I would say is that um, uh, data has a, a lot of potential for um, not only may, have, may leading to improved decisions on the part of flood management and uh, all the different ecological factors that are significant, but it also has an important uh, role to play in providing a trust dividend to all the different players involved, especially if you have the right mechanism by which you go in and acquire the data. Um, one particular case I would uh, put in uh, uh, perspective also where data could potentially help also to resolve a territorial dispute uh, is in the Indus Delta region, which is the Sir Creek dispute uh, between India and Pakistan. Uh, and that, uh, you know, the original dispute is around the demarcation of a particular trip, you know, a channel in the Indus Delta. Um, but if there is assurance provided around, you know, scientific collaboration uh, and uh, figuring out a better way to actually conserve that area, um, particularly because it's a Ramsar level wetland site, it's a very special, you know, mangrove ecosystem. Uh, you could actually use that as a mechanism to also try and build trust which could hopefully eventually resolve that. And I think that's the easiest territorial dispute between India and Pakistan to resolve and sadly it has been completely neglected. It's one which if the US or the Europeans invested political capital to try and mediate, it would not be as vehemently opposed as other mediation efforts are opposed by both, uh, well, particularly India in the case of uh, the northern disputes. Uh, the northern disputes are a different story. I have done some work on those as well, particularly Siachen, and I can talk about that if you like. Um, but in the context of this paper, I think Sir Creek uh, is particularly one which deserves attention. Uh, it's a low-hanging fruit for dispute resolution, and it appalls me that 
uh, no one really in the diplomatic arena has invested the political capital to resolve it. Um, and it would really improve the lives of all those fishermen, sadly, who get arrested every year by both countries and then in this uh, show of pomp and circumstance are released every year on Independence Day uh, as a gesture of goodwill. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is, it's a very sad uh, commentary on the, the completely illogical nature of uh, political behavior in South Asia. So, um, so I would say that one deserves attention. I have a separate paper I have authored on the Ramsar Convention and its role in uh, dispute resolution. Uh, the Ramsar Convention is the International Treaty on Wetlands. Of course, the U.S. has itself ratified it. And it's one which uh, is widely considered a major success story of environmental uh, diplomacy. But it um, it could be used. It could be kicked up a notch and actually help to resolve some territorial conflicts too, because there's a whole provision under the Ramsar Treaty on transboundary wetlands. And so we looked in this paper and ranked some of the uh, wetlands that have the potential for conflict resolution and territorial disputes. So I'm happy to share that paper with you as well. So uh, I'll end it there uh, and um, open it up for discussion and uh, welcome your thoughts and insights. Great, thank you. Um, I think you brought up a very interesting idea when you were talking about data acquisition and the potential for shared efforts. So potentially bringing together scientists from both sides to do acquisition together. I think that's a very interesting thing and something that we actually talked about in our dialogue as well. Um, but you hit the nail on the head when you started out saying politics will always play a role. Um, and one of the biggest challenges we face with some of our dialogues is that visas are difficult. There's always, you know, ups and downs in the relationship that kind of prevent consistency in any sort of joint venture. So how do you deal with that issue? And really what role or what scope is there for external actors or institutions to come in to help with data acquisition and consistency? Yes, yeah. well, I mean, I think it's really important to, um, to give scientists the independence to be able to acquire that data. You know, this is the sad part. We had suggested to the SARC system that there should be specific scientific research uh, visas uh, where scientists are able to get access and the sad thing is it's more difficult for scientists to get visas between India and Pakistan. It's easier for music troops and dancing troops to get visas than scientists, right? And I'm not trivializing the music and dancing troops, they play an important role in cultural diplomacy. But the reality is the scientists are are potentially going to be able to prevent major you know disasters uh, impact if you get good geological data for example on earthquake occurrence or you get good hydrological data on floods and they are not able to get that it's it's appalling i mean we have worked on it so i think there needs to be an effort i i would say um you know, there, there, there should be an international arrangement around uh, providing scientists that ability to work with greater freedom and to acquire that uh, information. This has been something that um, uh, UNESCO has been uh, proposing at various levels. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, this is sadly the situation that requires leadership. You need people who will be, I mean, China and the U.S., we had a horrible visa regime and then with leadership from both presidents, now it's a 10-year visa I got for China I'm on my U.S. passport. Now I was like, wow, and my Australian colleagues were like, oh, we just get a one-year visa. But, you know, it was just leadership and just a matter of a few years ago, it was a complete hassle getting Chinese visas. So it can happen. It's a matter of leadership and the, the foresight to see this. And there are lots of provisions which can be put in place to ensure that, you know, that data is not misused. Nowadays, you can track information so well, actually, that it's, it's less likely that data would be misused now than it was in the Cold War, because you can track it so well. Yes. Um, uh, I'm Robert Boggs. I, I'm a South Asia specialist at National University. Um, I spent about 30 years in South Asia as a diplomat. Um, um, I don't want to sound either uh, sound defeatist, yeah. but um, in case you haven't encountered this, let me give you a couple of examples. Just the level of rancor, uh, bad faith, and just 
general bloody-mindedness is almost unbelievable. Yes. Um, I know that, for example, the um, the uh, cartographic, the Indian government's uh, cartographic center, at least the last I was there, was in, in Calcutta. Yes. And if you come near it, uh, it has huge walls and uh, concertina wire around it. It's considered a strategic asset uh, to such an extent that once I was uh, in uh, Himachal uh, Pradesh, yes. uh, at the site of a run of the, the river hydroelectric construction uh, project, and I talked to the chief engineer and I was asking him about the peaks around, you know, this is beautiful, you know. He said, I can't tell you even how high they are because the government of India will not give me general topographical maps of the region because they're considered too sensitive. Now, Pakistan. Um, the Pakistanis, or at least right now, certain elements of them, love to say that uh, India is stealing their waters. You know, our waters, they're stealing them. And the question, of course, is, well, is it, are it's, is it because of Indian hydroelectric projects or is it because of the recession of the glaciers and just general climate change? I mean, it's a real, it's a, it's a, it's a, an empirical question. Well, the Pakistanis and we, and we, the U.S. government, has suggested, well, let us put together a, a, a joint, maybe even multinational a scientific team that could, first of all, that would establish certain um, data uh, uh, standards. I mean, what, what kinds of, of tools do you use? Where do you put those tools? And all kinds of things. It, it makes sense. Anybody would say that's the reasonable thing. Um, no, they don't want to do it. They don't want to hear about it because facts might get in the way of some very good polemical uh, points. Yeah. You don't really want to know that it's because overall levels have gone down if you want to be able to, to bash the, the Indians for stealing your waters. Uh, and thirdly, um, I've had an, I used to live in Kathmandu um, and have spent time at, uh, at the SARC headquarters. Yes. Yep. Um, and I don't know, maybe this is just by, because of being an American, and Americans are considered kind of troublemakers, but if you go into SARC, um, if I go into SARC today, and I've done this before, and want to talk to them about water, they just blanch, like, oh my God, that is verboten. Yeah. I mean, and because, partly because India does not want to get into any uh, issues, you know, there's all these bilateral issues, yeah. and it's considered way, way, way too sensitive. Um, the, SARC, the, the SARC Secretariat people told me not so long ago that the only area where they have any freedom to talk about water is water quality, yeah. about pollution and that sort of thing. But the whole area, I mean, you know that SARC is, has its hands tied as to the kinds of things it can look at. It can look at postal unions and, and sort of non-political things, but water is considered way too sensitive. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's, it is really, really difficult. And the question you ask, uh, for outsiders to get involved, it, all of it, hackles go up all all around. It's just because yep. it it is it is perceived as um, well. Not only is it intrusive, it could be, but it also it infringes on uh, sovereignty issues and yep. so forth. Because I mean, the Indians have their their view, and damn it, they're going to stick to it regardless of what the data. And I think th the same thing is true of Pakistanis. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you know, I share your frustration and I've been working on this as well and track to diplomacy efforts through various uh, mechanisms and, uh, uh, but I think giving up is not an option. I mean, I'm an eternal optimist in this way. I think it, you know, if you, uh, it, it may take a generational struggle uh, and it, that incremental effort has to keep continuing. Uh, and for all we know, there may well be some leadership uh, a situation where someone is willing to take that political risk and 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 take the heat for all of the you know the usual uh, sort of uh, the nationalistic rhetoric which is going to uh, be uh, levied on them uh, for being traitors and blah 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 you know but that that I think one thing which which is somewhat heartening is that um, at the uh, that SARC has an environmental protocol in process and you know you can't really have any environmental discussion of um, water quality even without looking at water quantity because there's a, you know dilution issues there are all the, so many factors which come into it so there there is a bit of a push now that people are saying that uh, you, you need to think more integratively around it um, but it's always uh, you know one incident can throw everything in in a frenzy um, 
I do think that uh, the international community can exert more leverage on both countries. I think they have not been able to do. I mean, I had uh, this conversation with Richard uh, Boucher, who was the former Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia and now is the best in residence at Brown. And he was saying, look, uh, you know, the, the ideas, you it's, it's true, we just didn't. It, there were other things happening and when when I presented some of these ideas to him around Siachen for example and uh, on, on using uh, uh, the Peace Park effort as a Siachen diplomacy effort also which has been presented and then you know actually uh, Manmohan Singh did make a statement that maybe one day this could be a Peace Park which is very heartening for those of us who have been pushing it for so long um, but he said yeah we just didn't invest the political capital and you know there because there's so much else going on the, the terrorism issue all this other stuff going on but what I've also tried to make the case is that you can you can deal with the terrorism issue better also if you have better trust between these neighbors and you're able to get some cooperation going and you know if I think if for example if you were able to resolve a, a major dispute like Siachen it would go a long way to building confidence in, in in a lot of quarters who feel somewhat disenfranchised right now. And I am absolutely positive there's no way it can be resolved without a third party intervention. That much I'm willing to take the risk to say people will get, and the Indians will say and the Pakistanis will say we can sort it out. It will never happen. I mean, you look at any other major territorial dispute with that level of trust deficit, you need third party intervention. and. That third party intervention can either come from uh, uh, a major power like the US or China, you know, it could be a, a multitude, it can be like the, the um, you know, six party framework, it can be through a UN mechanism, less likely UN mechanism because the Indians don't trust the UN past resolutions. I think you really do need a few key players, I think the UK has a very important role to play, the US has a very important role to play, UK particularly because they were the colonial power. If you look at East Timor, you know, the Portuguese played a really important role in resolving that. The Australians also helped. You could have a middle power that helps along with another power. Um, there are other middle powers, I think, who could play an important role. Um, so I, I think that's the way to go and we just have to keep at it. I, I just feel it's frustrating for all of us, but it's just giving up is not an option. <laughs> Yes, Hi, I'm Teresa Stepler, I'm a AAAS fellow at U.S. Geological Survey. Okay. Yes. And I, I know, um, so to the point that water is a very sensitive topic and can sometimes be untenable, even yes. when the topic is brought up, there's a project um, that you probably know about called Paris, Contribution to High Asian Runoff from Ice and Snow. It's a USAID WWF um, collaborative project and they have it's my understanding that they've been successful in uh, water management cooperation sort of under the guise of snow leopard habitat conservation. So because water is so sensitive and they're not able to really bring that up in Asia, um, they've instead focused on snow leopard habitat conservation and it turns out that the same factors important for conserving these leopards contribute to proper water management of the system and that's been a much more politically tenable topic to talk about conserving snow leopards and so I wonder if there's other examples that you've seen like this where we can sort of accomplish our same goals but politically you know focus on it on a different topic that is more politically tenable. Yeah, that's a great idea and good point. I think uh, there are ways that um, you can package just like you know bills in congress are packaged in certain ways but that's exactly the the you know more integrative solutions like that where you make and, and, and environmental issues allow for that you know because you can make the case that snow leopard habitat conservation requires understanding what now i don't know if they're are they focusing just because the snow leopard india is not as involved in that right, right? It's, it's more high mountains it's high mountains uh, maybe pakistan afghanistan Nepal, tajikistan yeah, or, right. yeah so um but the major problem is the Indo-Pak one, even Afghanistan, yeah. Pakistan, I mean, there's a very good pyre, is it that, you know, the USAID uh, uh, program for science co cooperation, there's a grant which LEAD Pakistan recently got, I'm on the board of LEAD Pakistan, which is an, it's an environmental organization in Pakistan, and they're uh, focusing on the Kabul River, and they've been able to get 
cooperation afghanistan pakistan thankfully on that at least so but it's the indo pak one which is the you know unfortunately the most inscrutable and that's the most consequential when it comes to the ecology not even in terms of the demography the ecology because that's the the area where you have the rivers flowing uh, you know the border of course going the, uh, uh, flowing from india to pakistan is very consequential in terms of the flood plain it's also very consequential in terms of the geology in terms of the faults and we don't really fully you know have as much information with all the earthquake hazards for that region where most of the people are living um, so that's great i'm glad usgs is doing it and the triple as fellowship is a great program so I think we are at 10.30, but we can take one to two more questions together. Yes. Um, on House Day, and a former collaborator um, is uh, Celine on making a film, actually. Yes. And uh, I noticed that you have in your title, Natural Hazards in Regionalism, uh, and you haven't mentioned climate change, mm. uh, which uh, definitely affects the sensitivity of David. Yes. Um, very much so now, and uh, it must play a leading yes. role in uh, getting the countries together about water. Yes, absolutely. Actually, it's really good you raised that point, Alice, because the uh, the British government has that one positive move they made was around climate cooperation. Uh, they set up this uh, this initiative called CDKN, the Climate Development Knowledge Network, and this was um, an effort to get as much information shared around climate change around the world. And the South Asian hub for CDKN is in Pakistan, which is also interesting that they chose that. And so um, the that's a situation where the, the hub being they had to choose some location in the region they chose Pakistan they could have gone the easy route and chosen Nepal <laughs> where okay but they felt that that's the country which is most vulnerable in terms of if you look at per capita the impact climate change can have uh, Bangladesh and Pakistan but uh, Pakistan some argue uh, is more in terms of desertification and other things um, so um, and so out of that what has happened is there's a bit of forced cooperation around climate uh, knowledge but it's not it's not as much scientific data as much as more like best practices of what people are doing to adapt to climate change so there's it's, uh, there's a lot of case comparisons which are being shared on climate change adaptation in the region um, so uh, absolutely that's a, and now with the uh, you know the, the the climate fund having been established by the south koreans uh, i think there is going to be a lot of funding available that hopefully people will apply for i mean you can give incentives for people to apply for donor funds um, and say look we'll only give you the money if you have india and pakistan as partners on this grant or something like that you know so that that can certainly create an incentive just a general question. If you had to point us to one case study that you think is, you know, globally or just within the region, um, kind of a shining example of what we'd like to accomplish, what would it be? Um, in terms of data exchange, no? It's leading to greater diplomatic relations. Better relations, yeah. I mean, the classic case people give in terms of environmental cooperation is the uh, Ecuador Peru example they called the era del condor uh, region where uh, there was a huge territorial dispute uh, the us and brazil actually helped mediate it i mean there was an armed conflict historically there and they were able to come to a resolution through nasa providing um, imagery and confidence to both sides that look if there was a violation of the border we would be able to provide you with remote sensing data uh, and then conservation international was given a uh, contract to monitor the biodiversity and so on so that was was not hydrological but it was ecological um, but the problem with that case now what I've heard recently is that they didn't have a good mechanism to monitor and so now the drug lords are using that area as a conduit because it's been demilitarized and so it's actually easier for all these other negative elements to go in so you know you you don't want an environmental conservation area to become a 
place for an illegal economy as well. But yes, I, well, that's one of the good cases there. The Balkans is another one where there has been, after the uh, the, the Dayton Peace Accords, you know, there's, there's much more uh, information exchange, environmental information being exchanged in that region. The, the Scandinavians have done a great job with funding specific programs to exchange data between the countries and that's really helped to improve relations between the Balkan states, no doubt. Uh, particularly Croatia and Serbia. I mean, there's, there's still, I know, I've, I've taken students actually on a field course in the generic Alps and we cross the borders physically and, you know, you, you, it's great to see you can now do that. You know, I take the students where before there were landmines and all, but but still, they, so they, I think Balkans is another one to keep an eye on. Let's take a final comment and then we can get closing words. Okay. Well, just, just thinking, your, like your advice, um, as a kind of a, a near-term expedient, a way of getting uh, maybe around um, this sort of loggerheads we have between India and Pakistan on data sharing. Um, and again, I realize what I'm proposing uh, could be costly, I mean, in terms yeah. of funds, but um, let's say that there were, let's say, a commercial satellite uh, space available. Mm -hmm. um, if someone paid to uh, for do overhead surveys of the, uh, of the Indus Valley, area over time, maybe on a regular basis, um, is, the, um, is the hardware in terms of being able to, to uh, measure the, the changes in elevation of the water, and get, of course that's related to volume, but anyway, uh, could you get enough data, uh, again from a completely objective third person satellite, and then just put that online so that both Pakistan and India would have it. And, uh, and it might help other people like yourself who are involved in negotiations provide them a, a, um, a kind of a baseline uh, of data. Uh, it, 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 it might, first of all, make both sides look, look as stubborn and stupid as they are uh, in, in holding on to uh, uh, unrealistic ideas. But does that, would that, would that be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I think on the remote sensing side, there could be, it could be done, definitely. And, the, and uh, there is the wherewithal that NASA has to engage in that. There, there are certain protocols where countries have said that even though satellites can provide that data, they they um, they block out the resolution. Like uh, you know, with the Google Earth, actually, they've had this situation with Israel and the the Demona facility, the nuclear facility. You can look at all the Google Earth for Israel, and that nuclear is like a, you know what happened there. You know, but because they they they. There are some, I, I'm not, actually it's a good question from an international legal perspective, how did, how was Google told by Israel not to show that data? Because there, there must have been some arrangement there that no, you can't do it. And then I'm, it's, uh, it's worth looking into what the international legal norms are on that, but it's a good point, definitely. Yeah. All right, well, thank you all for joining us. We um, will be in the lobby, I assume, for a little yeah, bit so you can yeah, continue to ask you. questions. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.